I pray that you guys have had a good Christmas. Um, and my family, we had a wonderful time worshiping. Well, yeah, it was it was worship on Christmas Eve. We had a wonderful time worshiping with you guys. That was a really really wonderful service. And thank you um, for those who helped set it up and and the really really fast takedown. <laughs> that's always a that's always a huge help. So thank you. Um, our family had an enjoyable celebration on Christmas Day, with uh, starting off with a hearty breakfast of scrambled eggs, bacon, and cinnamon rolls, and we didn't eat a whole lot after that. Um, <laughs> and we had a pretty low-key day, pl- playing fun with some games and new toys, and then uh, thankfully the kids got up really, really early, so the nap time was really, really great, and uh, and we had some time in the Word. So. Um, I hope your Christmases were at least as good. So um, as we get into the word this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I've been asking people, I just list a bunch of things that we did on Christmas Day. And I've been asking people what they, what they or their families have had for traditions around the holidays. Um, what, are the, what are those things that are built into our holidays and, and things that Later on, they bring, or even that, that moment, they bring fond memories. They give a little bit of a sense of consistency to often, frankly, chaos in the, in the holidays. Um, and there are things that we look forward to the next Christmas season, the next new year. And uh, um, even as we get ready to head into the new year, so what are, what are those New Year's traditions for you? Either celebrated on, on the new year or... Or otherwise, is it the the ball drop in Times Square? Is it finger foods, um, a sparkling beverage at midnight, staying up till midnight, or are you like me, who I want to get to bed on time and uh, forget the, the the ball drop in Times Square that goes on without me, just fine. And you know what tradition I've been thinking about recently. It's the one that everybody has a love-hate relationship with in this country. Resolutions. I mean, it seems like that when the Christmas glow starts to wear off and the New Year looms, we get ready by thinking of all the things we'd like to do differently or of how junk-filled we've been eating for the past, I don't know, months, probably since the 4th of July. Um, And we think, well, all right, we're going to commit. We're going to lose a few pounds. We're going to stick... We're going to stick to a, um, an exercise routine, get to the gym, or maybe we're going to get out of debt, or we're going to we're going to clean clean all clean all of the things out of that room where the things go to die. Or maybe your resolution is you want to stick it to someone out there and say, "My resolution is not to have any resolutions." Ha! Or maybe it's. Your resolution, you want to resolve to have better relationships. You want, to, you want to stick to a Bible reading plan for the new year. Or resolve to share the gospel with your neighbors or committing to join a church or be, be more involved. I found a little book. I've had it for a little while, but um, by Jonathan Edwards. He was a 17th century preacher in the United States. Actually, I think it was, uh, yeah. Um, in the 1700s, um, in the uh, in the United States in the colonies, and um, he wrote 
70 resolutions over the course of two years. And they're a bit humbling when I read them because my resolutions are usually, yeah, I need, I need to, to eat, a, eat a bit better, shed a few pounds maybe. And, uh, um, and I, it's, can, it can be easy to get off track in those things that are, just seem so obvious or, or physically apparent. And listen to what he has to say. I'm just going to read a few of them. And, and I, can, I would definitely recommend the, the, book, the little book to you. But number one is his, his resolution. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Bear with the language here a bit. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, however so many or however so great. Or uh, resolution number six. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Or number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. So as we think about a new year, a new new resolutions, where should we base all those resolutions? What, if we might say, what resolution might be most important. And let's actually up, up the stakes a bit, not just for the new year, but what's most important, of first importance for you in the course of your life, in the life of this church, in the life of anyone? What is that thing that should be central? What is that thing that should shape every other thing? So if we looked at a list of New Year's resolutions, everything would tie to this one thing. As we gather to worship this last Sunday of the year 2019 and get ready to enter the new one, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in, verses, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. A reminder from the Apostle Paul. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You can have a seat. What was on the Apostle Paul's mind? What was on all of the apostles' mind? What, is on, what was on Jesus' mind as the most important thing, as, the, as of first importance? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. Now, Paul comes to remind the Corinthians of this in this letter because there were lots of opinions in this church and lots of opinions outside the church that said, I gave all sorts of options as to where one could be centered, where one could be grounded, where one could stay. And it's easy to get off track. And we're in the same boat. And as I told the kids this morning, one of the ways that we can recenter is recognizing that the gospel is, is of first importance, yes, but the gospel is a gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. And then jumping down to verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The gospel is a gift. We're given it. It's a gift to be received. And as Paul mentions here... He mentions nothing about earning. And the scripture says, you can't earn this gift. It is a gift given. That's the whole reason it's a gift. In fact, look at verse 3. Christ died for our sins. Did you catch that? In this text and in all of scripture, do you know what our contribution is to this gift? Jonathan Edwards, in another writing of his Said it, said it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You see, God had designed the world to glorify Him. And we chose to believe that His plan wasn't good enough, that He wasn't good enough, that we should take His place. And when that happened, things fell apart. And we are the beneficiaries of generations after generations after generations of people rebelling against God and ourselves in our choices, in our, even, in our very nature, rebelling against God. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it, made it necessary. But look what it says in verse 3. That Christ died for our sins. But we wouldn't know this unless it was given to us. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul himself is an excellent testament to this. He says here in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, have you ever read Paul's story in Acts 9? Paul was actually on his way (laughs) to arrest Christians who had gotten out of Jerusalem. And that's when Jesus met him. That's when the gift was given to Paul. And he was struck off his horse by light and blinded. And Jesus says to Ananias, the Christian who is to find Paul and and help him, he says in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was given this gospel as a gift. You know, his track was on a, as a persecutor of Christians and Jesus even told him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was on a one-track road to utter destruction forever. And yet God showed him mercy. Yet God gave him a gift. And the Apostle Paul here says that that gift is of first importance. So if I were to quiz you today, and ask you what the gift of the gospel is. What, what could you tell me? What would you, what would you say it was? If I were to give you a blank piece of paper, and have you write it down in a sentence or a paragraph, what would you say? And is even the thought of that terrifying to you? Well, hopefully. And help you out this a little bit this morning is because verse three he makes it very clear. This is a way that we express what the gift is: that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to people. You see, this gift is, and the reason he cites it this way: that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared, is that this gift is an actual Christ, that it means one who saves, who actually died to atone for actual sins, who was actually buried, and who actually came back to life, and actually fulfilling a whole bunch of scripture written hundreds of years before he actually showed up on the scene. And then, the account of it wasn't just written down by people who had no experience of seeing him, even though that would have been sufficient if it had come from God. No, he was actually seen by people. Real live people. Lots of them. And even Paul makes the invitation. He's like, some of these guys are still alive. You can go talk to them. They saw the risen Jesus. Why? Why is this all together? So that the Corinthians and you and me might know that Christ died for our sins too. 
and that we could have life in him, which you received, verse 1, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Now, I mentioned it already. I mentioned it to the kids, and they, they didn't think it was that very interesting, and I don't know if you will either. But one of the gifts that I received on Christmas was this pen. It's a, it's a, what makes this pen special to me? Well, one, my wife gave it to me, which is always, always a good reason. But two, it's a fountain pen. I like fountain pens. A bit of a snob. Don't judge me. And what did I do once I opened this gift? Well, actually, truth be told, I felt compelled to write all sorts of things. Like, I wanted, I wanted to use the gift. Um, and actually, even stuff that I would normally type out, I'm like, I want to write it. Maybe that's just me. But that's a small picture, a really small picture of receiving God's gift as of first importance. We're, when we receive it, we are drawn to use it. We're drawn to be in it. We're drawn to dwell in it. We're we're drawn to give it as it was delivered to us. The news of salvation is delivered to me and to you, and I just get to believe it. It's a gift, and you are given this news so that you get to believe it, and you get to be saved. Let me offer two hypothetical scenarios about gift giving or gift receiving. What if I had been given a gift and refuse to open it? Or what if I had been given this gift, say the pen, and but didn't use the pen to write with, but I used it to stab my food to eat it? Or what if I discarded the pen and enjoyed and took and favored the box instead? You know, I wouldn't be just communicating at the very least, an incorrect understanding of the gift, I would be communicating unbelief about the giver of the gift. Do you know what I mean? I would be, in, not re, in refusing to receive the gift of salvation, or receiving it, as Paul says, in vain, where we don't understand what, it, what this salvation is, We're saying we don't really believe the giver who gives it anyway. We're saying that it's not worth receiving, that it's not worth standing in, and it doesn't actually save. So when Paul says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, he's actually communicating that the gospel is not just a gift. A gift to be tossed or used however we want it to. He's communicating that the gospel is our gift and the gospel is our ground. One commentator I read wrote this. He said, If people profess to believe the gospel, but have not given due consideration to what that implies and what that demands, they really do not trust Christ. Their belief is groundless and empty. They lack saving faith. It's like opening the pen and using it to stab my food. I don't really believe it's a pen. So when Paul is saying, unless you have believed in vain, the only way... You believe in vain as if you don't believe the real gospel, the real, de- the real deal. Okay, now how can I say this? How can I say that's what he's saying? 
And look at the passage. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. What does he mean? He means that the gospel is our ground. It's what saves us. It's what we can stand on. Tie it with another scripture that Paul wrote in Romans 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, when we believe the real gospel, it's not like when we believe that real gospel, we can stand in it until something stronger comes and knocks us off of it. We have both the gospel that is a gift and that is both the gospel that is a gift and the gospel by which we are being saved. The gift is not taken away once it's given. And it's not shaky ground that we're given to stand on. It's totally secure. Do you believe that the gospel is totally secure? That it keeps you totally secure because it is real? It really happened, and it's powerful, and it's based and sent from the one who is himself utterly unshakable. God the Father sending Jesus Christ, the Son. And if that were not enough, it's not like this ground hasn't been tested before. Yes, it comes from God himself who never changes, who is immortal, who never fails. But it also bears the weight of believers seeing it. Seeing him in the flesh, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We talked about Paul a little bit. But this group, this group includes Cephas, which is Peter's name in Aramaic. So we're talking about Peter, Peter the Apostle. We're talking about Peter, the guy who denied the Lord Jesus three times and thought he was without hope after such a denial. We also have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who thought his brother was crazy for saying that he was the Messiah. And we have a host of other believers many of whom locked themselves in an upper room for fear of reprisals after Jesus died. But what happened to these people? What happened to Peter? What happened to James when Jesus came back from the dead? Jesus himself addressed himself to encourage Peter. Go tell my disciples and Peter, he told the women. And then... Jesus shows up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and restores Peter. And this Peter faithfully proclaims the gospel and was eventually crucified upside down for having the gospel as his ground. And James, who saw his half-brother resurrected just as he said, this James led the early church in Jerusalem and encouraged it was crucial in the acceptance of the Gentiles into the church. 
that Gentiles could believe the gospel too and receive it by faith and be saved. And you know what happened to him? He was stoned to death by the same Sanhedrin that condemned his brother. And the group of 500, they served in the church and were apparently not ashamed of of the name of Jesus. As Paul mentions that some are still alive, the Corinthians want some further first-hand evidence. What happened? What happened? They believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and stood in it. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in them and they were transformed. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we, believe, do we recognize this real gospel? And do we believe it? And if we are saved, do we remember and bank on the truth that it is the ground on which we stand? You know, what he says here in verses 3 three through 8, if that were not here, as one commentator said, we would have no essential Christian position. See, if Jesus didn't didn't die for our sins according to the Scriptures, if He wasn't buried, if He didn't rise from the dead according to the Scriptures, and if He wasn't seen by people, what are we doing here if that's not real? What are we doing here if that doesn't change us? Why did we come together this morning to obey a bit of passage in Hebrews, which says, Let us consider not how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the, the day drawing near. Why would we do that if this isn't real? Let me, let me dare to put it this way. If what we are reading this morning isn't real, it would be better for us to sit at home in our pajamas and eat some more Christmas treats. Even Paul says something like this later on in this chapter. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all, of all people most to be pitied. If this isn't real, we are rightfully the laughingstock of the entire world. But as Paul testified, as Peter could testify, as James could testify, as those 500 could testify, as thousands upon thousands over century after century beyond when Paul wrote this, men and women here 
including myself, can testify in agreement with Paul as he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It is real. This gospel is real. It is our ground. It is our solid ground. The gift of solid ground to stand on. And it's not only solid ground. The gospel is our way. Now I would remind you, brothers, verse 1 again, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. The gospel is our way. The gospel is what we continue in. In a sense, in a sense, when we are saved, when we believe the gospel, yes, it is a one and done. We don't have to redo salvation over and over again. The Bible calls us who are saved children of God. You never become unchilded as a child of God. You're never dis, we're never dis, once we are owned by our Heavenly Father, we're never disowned by our Heavenly Father if we are truly His. And we're also legally clear forever from the penalty of our sins. Scripture uses the word justification to describe all this. But one of the ways that it is clear that we are truly His that the gospel is truly one and done in our lives, is that the ground that we stand on is the ground that we also walk on. Paul says, starting in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He was walking one way, completely the opposite way. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You know, when we talk about the gospel as a gift, when we talk about the gospel as our ground, when we talk about the gospel as our way, we're talking about God's grace upon us. We don't deserve to be saved in the first place. We're the ones who offended God, not the other way around. And God is God because he doesn't need us. And he could have just left us to our own just condemnation. But we don't worship a God who is only just or only gracious. We worship a God who is both fully just and fully gracious. That's how we get Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for us. That's grace. And that his life was accepted as an atoning sacrifice. That's justice. That we might be made righteous because of him. That's both grace and justice together. And because the gospel doesn't just stop, our salvation doesn't just stop either. God is committed that his grace not stop. His mercies are new every morning, Lamentations says. By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. God's grace is never given in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is the way we walk. Yes, we're involved, but we're not the main character. I mean, look at what Paul says. I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of who? God that is with me. This is not a book about how we were totally worth our salvation. The how, we re- how we of ourselves really showed that we were worth saving. Actually, praise God that God was, loves us too much to deliver that kind of worthless gift to us. No, the gift he gives us, the ground he gives us, the way he has for us, it's about him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, it's not that God's help and presence must still be proved in our life. Rather, God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is in fact, now get this, it is in fact more important for us to know what God did to Israel and in God's Son, Jesus Christ, than to discover what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the day of judgment. Our salvation is from outside ourselves. I find salvation not in my life story, but only in the story of Jesus Christ. Only those who allow themselves to be found in Jesus Christ in the incarnation, cross, and resurrection are with God and God with them. Wow. The grace of God that is with me. All of this wonderful gospel, all of this wonderful gospel of salvation from beginning to end that we get to participate in, just as Paul did, though he was the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, was to display the message of first importance. This is is the same message, whether then it was I or they, so we preach the message of first importance, and so you believe. Whether that was Jesus himself, whether that was Peter, whether that was James, whether that was Paul, So in your believing, is this your way? Do you love this message? It is objectively of first importance, yes. But do you hold it fast? Do you hold it first over everything in your life? And then, is your life displaying that fact? Paul was paying attention to the grace of God in his life. That's how he could say that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. He wasn't like trying to boast there. He was seeing what God was doing. Are you paying attention to God's grace in your life? Through the gospel by which you are being saved. Jesus said that the greatest commandment was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. Love, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So if you were to pray, 
It's kind of a bold prayer. But if you were to pray, Lord, is my life about me or is my life about you? Is it your life, Lord? What do you think you would hear? And if you fear the answer that you would get, let the good news come to you again that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And let's also consider this reality, that Jesus didn't die yesterday. He didn't die for you when you were 12. And he didn't die for you when you were a newborn. And for the Corinthians, this gospel message came decades after Christ had died, was buried, and rose again. Why do I mention this? Because when it says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins, all of our sins are future to that. All of our sins are future from the cross and the empty tomb. Did you know? Did, did you know that? Are, do you do you think that way? So let me ask you this: What sin of yours, if all of them are future and they are, what sin of yours can God not cover? If Christ died for your sins before you were even born. We need this reminder because when we sin, and we do, we can easily hear the voice and listen to the voice of condemnation that says, sure, he forgave you of your sins. But not that one. And we can recognize that voice as the condemnation that is a lie. If anyone is in Christ, as Paul writes in Romans, he is a if any, wait, sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And tie that with Second Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And where the new is, there is no condemnation. We walk in this way. By believing every day that this gospel is good. And this gospel is true and powerful. And it has been that way as it was the day we first believed. And it will be good, true, and powerful until he comes back. Which is what his resurrection guaranteed. So, for the Christian, then, our lives are not merely about New Year's resolutions. Praise God that somehow bad things will somehow go away if we just try harder. No, our lives, Romans 5 verse 6 says, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And our lives are not found in resolving to do better, to not just put away the old and do the new things. We can't do either on our own. But for the Christian, it is Christ's righteousness that will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The most important, of first importance for you and me in the courses of our lives, in the life of this church, and in the life of everyone. That thing that should be central, that thing that should shape every other thing, is this message of God that he gave to the Apostle Paul, to others who gave it to still others, down through the ages, through some, to somebody who gave it to you. That you might receive God's gift, the solid ground in which to stand, and the way in which to walk, grace upon grace, not in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to die for our sins and that you fulfilled everything that was said about you long before you showed up on this earth because you are God and you know the beginning from the end and you are, and you are solid ground in which we can stand and which we can trust. Lord, we do pray as we enter this new year that you keep at the forefront of our minds, your gospel. Lots of things going on in life, lots of voices, lots of noise. But we pray, Lord, that we would remember that there is one thing that shapes everything. Please help us. Please forgive us when we have gotten distracted, when we have allowed ourselves to get distracted. And thank you, Lord, that there is grace for that too. Thank you that you don't just save us and then leave, it, leave the rest up to us. No, you save and you continue by which we are being saved. Lord, thank you for that truth. Lord, we want to worship you more. We want to be closer to you. And we want to experience more of what it means to be in Jesus Christ. Please do that in us. Please grow us. Help us to be satisfied in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.